Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. I am the chief of endocrinology um, at Michigan State University, and it's a pleasure to be with you uh, this afternoon. We appreciate you joining us, Dr. Aldousuki. I, I uh, am glad to have you here. Uh, I know of your work and the things that you have done. As uh, you recall, we're going to discuss today the influence of biotin on laboratory measures. I know you have a keen interest in this, and you've done some research that was recently published at the AACE meeting, and uh, also you were interviewed by uh, the uh, Helio Endocrine News about that particular topic. So let's start by first, what is biotin? Okay, so so biotin is uh, a water-soluble uh, vitamin uh, of the B group. Uh, you know, we know B12 and B1 and whatnot. So this is actually B7. And uh, up until four or five years ago, I didn't know that there was a B7. Perhaps I had known when I was a medical student back in the days. But yeah, so it is a, it is a vitamin that is essential in uh, multiple pathways. Um, one major pathway is the gluconeogenesis, uh, the production of glucose in the body, as well as the metabolism um, and the pathways in uh, the metabolism or, or catabolism and so on of some um, uh, fatty acids and some amino acids and so on. So it's, it, it has some major roles. And it seems that in most of its biological effects uh, have to do with, uh, uh, with the uh, tissues or organs and whatnot, which had originated from the, the ectoderm. And the ectoderm, we know um, uh, partly the brain and partly the skin. And hence, um, there are some benefits um, uh, in the brain and, and neurons. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But also in the skin and the skin appendages, uh, such as hair, uh, uh, skin, and um, and nails, and uh, and that's uh, the letter. Uh, the letter actually is what probably has prompted this uh, uh, emerging um, problem with biotin. Now I read that it's also called vitamin H, which I didn't know about. I knew it was a B seven, but I didn't know it was sometimes called vitamin H. And that's one thing that I think patients should look for in supplements to see if it has vitamin Correct. H. They should, right. should look at that. Yeah, you're right. Vitamin H and also another name is uh, uh, coenzyme uh, R, I guess. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, if, if you look it up, you'll find it. And as a joke, uh, one time I was talking about it and I was wondering, I wasn't sure where the letter H came from. It may have come from some kind of some pathways or whatnot, but uh, somebody was joking. They said, well, it, it, it comes from here. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think it came from here, but um, yeah. So we all need vitamin uh, uh, B7 or biotin. Uh, it's, uh, it's a cofactor for some of these processes that you mentioned. I was also reading that the average daily recommended amount is like 300 micrograms, which is a pretty small amount. And it seems like most, when you look at the food substances that have biotin in it, most of us probably get sufficient amounts anyways. Um, what's, what's going on with the, you mentioned the brain and the nervous system. Tell us about that. And then we'll talk about the hair and the nails and the supplements that people are taking. 
Yeah, uh, just a little bit of um, uh, another correction, but clarification. The, the, uh, if we read uh, multiple uh, sources, the daily requirements is like 30 to 70 micrograms. Um, but, but what is in the multivitamins is what you mentioned, the two to 300 micrograms. Yeah, so so actually in the multivitamin there is uh, already uh, two to three times or more <laughs> of the of the daily requirement, and and of course we'll talk about the the hair products and whatnot, uh, which have huge amounts uh, of this um, uh, of of this vitamin. But to start off with the brain part and the neuron part, so it turns out that um, there is the adult population and the pediatric population. Uh, I can start off with the adult population, and there is some researchers have 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 suggested that a high dose. Uh, biotin can be effective in certain uh, severe cases of multiple sclerosis, and um, uh, studies have been done. Have been done, um, and, and I've come across uh, um, several studies. Uh, some of them suggested a benefit; others uh, not. As 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 the way it is in many many uh, you know difficult diseases and in new medications, where some studies may suggest and others may not. So the jury is, is still out there about the benefit. Uh, however, uh, the 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 dosages that have been used in multiple crosses have been huge, like up to 300 milligrams per day. So imagine <laughs> 300 milligrams per day means like um, not only 100, but almost like four to 500 folds um, the, the required um, daily amount or requirement. Um, uh, so uh, that's in the adult population. Uh, there are other uh, uses that have been tried, like uh, diabetic neuropathy, um, uh, neuropathic pains, uh, things like that, uh, like non-specific difficult conditions that um, uh, the, they, they tried it and there may have been some benefits. Um, however, the studies there are, are so uh, uh, so small, and there's there's not a lot of data on that. Now, coming to the pediatric um, age group, uh, there is a definite and well uh, established role for biotin in certain diseases. So, um, those so-called mitochondrial some some mitochondrial disorders that are associated with uh, like whatever something in the basal ganglia and things like that. Um, I believe uh, that that have to do with uh, uh, you know infantile seizures and um, uh, early childhood seizures and and other neurological manifestations, <clears throat> as well as uh, conditions that are called um, uh, um, uh, I think thiamine and uh, biotin responsive um, uh, neuropathy as well um, uh, in these uh, infants and children, um, and again. The dosages that have been used in these infants and newborns and children uh, of biotin to treat these conditions uh, are very huge. Again, uh, you know, 10, 20 milligrams or more. Um, so, uh, so these are the established kind of like uh, reasonably um, evidence-based um, indications um, of benefits um, uh, uh, of biotin. Some more of de defined, uh, or maybe even experimental, still somewhat therapeutic uses of it, right. not in the form of supplemental uses. So, why mm -hmm. why do you think that most people take biotin as a supplement? Uh, and we're talking about more than just the biotin in a multivitamin, but as a supplement. Yeah. Why? What's the what's okay. behind that? Yeah. So this story is a new. 
Um, now, the, the, um, the, the whole thing about the Biden awareness, if you wish, uh, began somewhere around, uh, sometime around 2016, 2017, about five years ago or so. Before that, probably nobody heard about Biden, <laughs> myself included. Um, and uh, because if you look up, if you look at any multivitamin prenatal or multivitamin centrum, whatever, you will find biotin there. It has been there for maybe 100 years in, in those uh, small multivitamins, as you mentioned uh, correctly, two to 300 micrograms, just like everything else from selenium to B1 to B whatever, all of these you know, um, uh, minerals and vitamins and whatnot. So nobody really paid attention to that. Now, because uh, uh, nothing really um, was a problem. However, um, the awareness actually was prompted uh, mostly um, uh, in, uh, in the pediatric uh, literature and in the pediatric world. How, how so? Uh, there are some smart researchers um, I'm not uh, sure from where, maybe Germany, I'm not sure, uh, uh, who published the first uh, big series of biotin lab interference uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine as a case series of six children uh, aged, um, I think, uh, two, three months up to nine years. And those children, uh, the researchers, uh, some somebody uh you know, somehow, you know, a lot of medical discoveries begin with a case or somebody thinking out of the box and whatnot, as you know. So it, it, it was noticed that uh, those six children were actually uh, diagnosed and treated, uh, at least half of them, as Graves' disease, as hyperthyroidism in, in uh, you know, children from the age of uh, newborn to up to nine years old. Um, and, you know, somebody was wondering, wow, you know, this three-month-old baby, really, can he have Graves' disease? Why? Because the T3 was high, the T4 was high, the TSH was low, and guess what? The TRAB or TSI, those immunoglobulins, <laughs> were also high. So what a better case of Graves' disease can you have on paper? Kind of, you know, whereas the kids, you know, they, nobody, none of the kids really showed uh, any features of graves of hyperthyroidism. So somebody thought about it and said, oh, what's going on? And I don't know exactly how they uh, realized, but then they say, oh, maybe it's the biotin. Somebody's maybe it's the biotin. They stopped the biotin for a week uh, on average in all of these kids. And guess what? The labs were normal. And in fact, in three children who were on methimazole, uh, I think uh, a couple of them had actually a mild degree of hypothyroidism. So imagine a, a young kid growing up needing thyroxine, <laughs> and now you're you're suppressing the production on the on the false assumption of Graves' disease. That's how the story started. And then, uh, and then around the same time, another uh, also case series of four, four children, uh, four infants actually, was published by another group um, in another big journal. Um, and so the, those are, those were the first two big studies, if you should, like six here and four there. And, and together with that, the FDA um, has been um, aware that there have been more and more cases like these 
reported from around the world, I guess, or at least from America, uh, saying, oh, uh, there, ha- there is an issue with biotin. So we have to be careful. And at the same time, I don't know how it so happened uh, around the same time that somebody came up with the idea of hair, you know, hair benefit and skin and nail, which also coincidentally started about the same time, like for five years ago or so. And so now you're seeing on the internet and, you know, the, um, uh, you know, people talk to each other. Oh, I have uh, my hair, my hair is falling, my skin is dry, my nails are pretty. So, oh, biotin is great. And so they started putting biotin in uh, those, uh, those beauty products and supplements. Um, and in particular women, because the vast majority of the case reports and we, we published, um, uh, at, we presented and published uh, two, three case reports and we are seeing those patients almost every day in the clinic, even, even as we speak. The last patient I saw, I think two days ago. Um, and, and I, I shared on, on, on the, the social. Network. I had a patient today where I didn't trust the lab. So I said, let's repeat them and ask the patient if she's on biotin. We have to think about it on a daily basis now. And it, and it is exactly. interesting that the collision of the awareness of how it interferes with laboratory tests has started at the same time that uh, it's been used in supplements uh, and both have ramped up in intensity over that time. Yeah. And, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how, how that's happening. Most of my patients have tell, told me that they didn't feel like they were benefiting from the biotin at all. Yeah, you know, in my case, it's a mixture. Um, it's a mixture. Uh, I have some patients who swore by biotin that without it, you know, their skin and hair and even nails are, you know, are, are not good. So I think if used in high doses, it should work. I mean, because if you think about like peripheral neuropathy, especially the first stages of diabetic nef- peripheral neuropathy that respond to vitamin B12, for example, I mean, you know, there is research that was done that actually B12, you know, uh, um, whether or I think whether or not there is B12 deficiency and whatnot. Um, so it seems that it, it, it works. Uh, but of course, there are some patients. I mean, if one is losing hair because of other, you know, <laughs> circumstances, then nothing will work, I guess, other than hair transplant, I think. <laughs> So let's talk about two things. First, magnitude of use, and I know you did a study about that, and then the doses used and the doses that might interfere with lab tests. And then I want to talk about more about the specific lab tests because they really apply to pituitary patients a lot. Uh, So what's the magnitude of use? And if you would compare the Mayo Clinic studies and your studies, I think they're both very interesting, and and I think it will help our listeners understand really how many people are using high doses of biotin. That's right. So, uh, as I have, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of like, um, uh, uh, as I got deeper and deeper into the study of biotensin, and by the way, I became aware of it. Actually, um, a patient told me about it like five years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a patient moved to my area from Detroit. I'm, I'm in Lansing. The patient moved from Detroit and she was bragging about her former, uh, I guess, either endocrinologist or, or family doc, who actually told her that her thyroid labs were off because of biotin. And at that time, I asked the question, what is biotin? So so <laughs> since then, uh, I then said, aha, that kind of like the aha moment. Then I started to remember 
those cases at that time, around you know 2016, 2017, that I was struggling with, uh, you know, so weird thyroid labs in particular that I couldn't. I thought that I'm I'm a good thyroid, you know, guy. So I was really struggling to uh, to interpret these labs that do not add up and that do not match with the clinical uh, picture. So uh, so at that time. Uh, after I, you know, and then the FDA warning came in late 2017. And then I realized that a lot of my patients who I was struggling with their labs turned out to be uh, from biotin interference and we stop it and um, and then everything is okay. And so we started a campaign in the clinic and in, the, in my community and we did like TV programs and in my blog and, and whatnot, because I realized that there is a huge lack of awareness about it amongst doctors you know other than the few endocrinologists at that at that time who knew about it incidentally i guess um the, the vast majority of of doctors and uh, everybody else didn't know um even as we speak so i felt uh, the responsibility to educate the public so then i said okay the magnitude how big is the problem so so we looked. Uh, we looked at the literature. We started looking at the literature at that in the beginning, and there was not much. Uh, there was like a recent uh, review of, I think the, I guess the enhanced um, data, like like uh, like two three periods over the last thirty years, and then uh, in relation to biotin, because you know these these people they they report their everything about their health every what ten years or whatnot, and so they looked. They found that there was um, a slight. Uh, well, there was a significant increase in the intake of biotin at a population level, but of course that's just you know just reporting. I think I think up to I don't know two to three percent um, uh, uh, in a dose that that could be a problematic, and we'll talk about what dose that is. Um, and then the first actual the first real study, good study, came from Mayo Clinic, and it was published I believe in 2019 or something like that. Two to three years ago. So what they did, they they took um, a, a cohort of outpatients, uh, outpatient patients, uh, uh, patients from the uh, outpatient clinics. Uh, I think they took uh, a number close to 2,000, so 1,900, 2,000, something like that. Uh, and they surveyed them uh, about biotin, how much, what brand, um, and so on. Um, and they found a prevalence of about 7.7%, so let's say 7.5% to the, you know, to be an average. And of course, when you think about, of course, this is a clinic, uh, you know, um, a clinic uh, study. So we cannot extrapolate it to population because, you know, we have to do a very, very large scale, um, at the level of the enhance and whatnot or the, the Birmingham, What's the, the other study called the uh, the, the Birmingham, whatever? So those are the population-based or the ARIC studies, and those are the population-based studies whereby or the CDC statistics where you could say, okay, the the prevalence of diabetes, let's say, is nine percent. Okay, that's a population level. This Mayo Clinic, as well as our study, which I'll uh, talk about briefly, uh, shortly, uh, it it's a, it's a clinic population, so if uh, but I think, you know, the, the, the people who attend the clinics in Mayo Clinic, let's say, are probably a reasonable representative um, portion of the population, excluding the very healthy people who, who don't go to doctors. But yeah, but um, 
Uh, so in parallel, they wanted to de to decide uh, the level. So they were they they actually uh, dove a little bit uh, deeper, and so they enrolled uh, about fifteen hundred patients. Not the same patients, obviously, but uh, and, and just like a matched a matched uh, sample of patients who came to the emergency room at Mayo Clinic, and they for whatever reason trauma, medical, surgical, whatever. Um, I believe adult, uh, if I remember, yeah, matched matched to the outpatient adult population, and um, they took blood from every single patient. So it was a randomized. So the first uh, cohort was randomized, and the second cohort in the ER was randomized. So they measured biotin level in all of these ER patients. So they took an extra red top tube and they 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 kept it for biotin. And they found about exactly the same number, roughly 7, 7.5% of the blood samples containing blood level above uh, so-called uh, 10 nanogram per ml, I believe. And that is that is the cutoff because they, there is a normal range uh, for all of us. The, if you measure the biotin in you and me and everybody who doesn't take extra, um, it will be uh, you know somewhere from 1 to 2 and up to 5 is a little bit high. 5 to 10 is borderline and above 10 is definitely uh, a cutoff for the beginning of interference with labs. So, yeah, so they found that they say, okay, well, it's about seven, seven to eight percent of people may be taking a huge amounts uh, to the extent that it can interfere with labs. And so we wanted to copycat kind of like we said, okay, we want to do a study. I, I had a, a, a group of residents in family medicine. They wanted to do a study and I said, okay, let's do a study on biotin. And we didn't want to repeat the same study there. It, it, it so happened that my residents uh, are in a family medicine program in a, in a rural area in Michigan, North Michigan. I said, okay, let's see if, because most of these are women. I said, okay, uh, the, most of the people who take biotin in excess amount, uh, as compared to uh, to men, most are, are women. So we said, okay, are rural women or are rural people similar in the attitude uh, of of taking biotin as compared to urban or like, you know, the, uh, the tertiary uh, center, you know, people uh, around the Mayo Clinic and so on. Uh, our, our hypothesis was maybe country people or rural people, maybe they're not as exposed to the internet and to, you know, uh, you know, to the, to the hype of, um, uh, of of these things, so maybe they do, they they don't have the same problem. We we found exactly about seven point two percent. We did the same survey that was done in the outpatient and Mayo Clinic. We applied it to about two hundred fifty uh, patients in the clinics of the family medicine um, uh, uh, in North Michigan, and we found the same prevalence. So it's it's it's, it's uh, across the board. Fascinating. And what um, what doses do you think are a problem? Uh, so if you're if, yeah. for for the healthcare providers out there, or even for the patients who are going to do the self assessment, what doses do you think are a problem that are going to lead to interference with the laboratory okay. studies? Okay, yeah, that's a good question, and and uh, it has been addressed um, in the literature of the uh, most of this literature uh, in addition to the pediatric um, uh, world. Uh, and the case reports here and there. Uh, most of the understanding and the information comes from uh, laboratory medicine, uh, you know, uh, literature. You know, we, we there is there is the there are like large um, large uh, large large organizations like AACC, 
not like uh, ours AAC, it's AACC, which is the American Association of Clinical uh, Clinical Laboratory and whatever they call it, uh, clinical yeah, uh, chemistry and laboratory medicine, and there is another group. So um, and they have big journals like clinical chemistry. So. The, the number five is kind of like the magic number, five milligrams. So most most of the pills, most of the excessive tablets come in five or 10 milligrams. Uh, and it, it it's typically called, that's why it's important, the education. It's not called biotin for the most part. It's it's called hair product, nail product, you know, hair health, uh, hair health, nail health, something. Uh, whenever you, wherever you see hair or nail or skin, <laughs> In, a, in the form of supplement, that's biotin. Um, they don't say biotin or B7 or, 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 or vitamin H or, or whatnot. Um, so because, and this is actually um, was proposed uh, by the ACC literature um, that five milligrams seems to be the number above which the problem may begin variably. Uh, and 10 milligrams, definitely, at least the thyroid labs begin uh, uh, no, not 10 milligrams. No, no, 5 milligrams is the beginning of the problem. So the 10 actually, so remember 5 and 10. 10 for the blood level, nanogram per ml, and 5 milligram for the tablet. These are the, like the, the thresholds. Um, but the labs, we'll talk about the labs. It, it is so variable. It, it varies from lab to lab, from machine to machine, from assay to assay, uh, as to how much biotin level in the blood uh, will interfere with with what lab? Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, just just for those out there who might not understand it, the reason it interferes with some of these radioimmunoassays is the technique of the study, and many of right. these tubes that are used to do the tests have what they're they're called bioattenuated. You know, I, I used to use these tubes when I was in my fellowship at Hopkins when I did laboratory research. We had to do the radioimmunoassays, right. and the tubes are coated with biotin, and they bind certain uh, and something else and sometimes the biotin is used to hold an antibody to the tube and it actually binds the substance that you're trying to measure and it's the biotin in the bloodstream that interferes with this whole binding process Uh, so it's sort of acting like a blocker and then you measure tests and they're either low or they're either high depending on the assay and things like that so it's really a product that's exactly that's exactly uh, what happens yeah, so it's a the yeah. the interference is a product of the way we do the testing. Uh, it's it's not Correct. that the biotin itself is affecting thyroid function, which I had one patient yeah. ask, "What's biotin no. doing to my thyroid?" It's doing nothing to the thyroid. It's interfering how we not measure it. So, that's exactly you nailed it. That's exactly what happens. And um, of course, we can spend another half an hour just to explain how that happens. Uh, and I think this is beyond the beyond the scope of of this brief. Uh, but but yeah, in, in my talks and grand rounds and. Uh, we did actually a webinar. Um, and by the way, I have to disclose that I have consulting um, uh, uh, arrangement with Abbott Diagnostic. Uh, so just so, so that this is uh, under uh, kind of like disclosed. So wh- uh, what? Uh, so I've been doing like uh, uh, public education um, before I was involved with 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 uh, with Abbott Consulting because you know when I came. Uh, when I became aware of this problem, it, it really was very relevant to my patients, and and uh, and I started talking to laboratories in my area um, to try to educate the clinicians uh, about that. When the labs do not add up, uh, think about biotin. So anyway, so um, so yeah, so so the 
the, the 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 labs that are affected you're right so so the biotin does not have anything to do with the thyroid or the pituitary or of course there is the, the testosterone estrogen parathyroid the troponin uh, at least 35 to 40 in total uh, immunoassays that are commonly used in clinical practice, not only in endocrinology, but in, in cancer and rheumatology and cardiology and whatnot. Um, uh, the, 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 the biotin doesn't do anything, you know, to the body. It's not harmful. It's not toxic. There has not been any case report of, of toxicity, you know, unlike, you know, for example, vitamin D that can be toxic or, or vitamin A and so on. So vitamin B7, uh, there is no toxicity per se. Um, uh, so the, the only thing is that it goes to the test tube and the reagent, and as you mentioned, the biotin, how it interferes, and when it blocks the, the biotin, uh, biotinylated uh, solid phase, then the actual uh, uh, things that we are measuring, such as T4 or TSH, we're not measuring them. We are measuring... Uh, whatever there is because uh, of the effect of the biotin. And so falsely high results in generally small molecules such as T4, T3, testosterone, cortisol, um, things like that, cortisol and things like that, and falsely low uh, results in bigger uh, molecules such as many of those, of some pituitary uh, hormones such as TSH, uh, parathyroid hormone, uh, troponin, um, and, and the so-called uh, big molecules that uh, that are done in a sandwich form. So the sandwich form are the big molecules because you need two immunoglobulins to capture them as compared to the competitive uh, uh, assays for the small molecules. Yeah, LH and FSH are even affected. You mentioned troponin. I was reading uh, a case report of a, or at least a record of a of a person who was taking biotin and was having a myocardial infarction or for lay people, a heart attack. And we measure troponin to see if there's a leak of this protein uh, from damaged heart muscle. And the troponin was negative. So they sent the patient home and the patient died of the heart attack. So it was one, one, one example of a patient who died because of biotin interference with assays. And as you mentioned about the children, there have been plenty of people treated for uh, suspected Graves' disease or hypothyroidism. We didn't really have these disorders whatsoever. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so there is misdiagnosis, mis in other words, false or fake diagnosis, and misdiagnosis, in other words, like the heart attack that you mentioned. So, or sometimes we, we can miss cancer because the, the cancer markers may, 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 may come back, uh, uh, you know, low, or maybe we can uh, overdiagnose if they come back <laughs> elevated. Because some labs, even the same lab, depending on the level in the blood, the same lab can go both ways, either falsely high or falsely low. But the average, the trend is that small molecules by competitive assays are falsely higher and large molecules by sandwich assays are falsely lower. So, so yeah, so there is, and there is uh, the potential for harm if we use medication that can cause side effects. And there was a, uh, you're right, the, the, the case of missed myocardial infarction or, or heart attack that you mentioned was reported in a woman and she actually sadly died. And that was the case that was reported to the FDA in late 2017, which prompted the FDA to issue a big warning about uh, about Biden in November of 2017. So yeah, that this very case that you mentioned, uh, yeah, the patient was discharged, 
and she died like uh, I think two hours later because they, they and when they in retrospect when somebody thought about biotin they they repeated the test from her blood uh, on a different assay on a different machine or equipment and it was very high so um, um, uh, that was because of biotin so yeah so there is the potential for harm so it's not only inconvenience and cost and unnecessary workup and imagine if 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 you think it's grave disease, you can you will ask you will order ultrasound, nuclear scan, and you may and and you and and nothing changes. You know, the patient will become hypothyroid in reality on mifimazole, in where in fact they are, you know, they they they, they are under the effect of biotin and it's still hyperthyroid in, in their lab. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's confusing. And when you think about my practice as a pituitary specialist, there are several hormones affected. And based on the number of people I see a year, we're talking about 150 to 200 patients a year whose labs may be influenced by this. If our yeah. experience in California is similar to that in Michigan and, and Minnesota, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, a lot absolutely. of abnormal test results because uh, that, that can, can, can dissuade you into thinking a patient does have a problem and may need a medication adjustment or whatever. Correct. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, for example, in the case of Graves' disease, uh, we're talking about one of the pituitary hormones, that's the TSH. Okay. And similarly, yeah. you could you could imagine uh, the thing is that there have there have not maybe there is underreporting or underestimation, and maybe people just don't just like myself and many of my colleagues in the thyroid world. You know, I was struggling with these cases and uh, and. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I put somebody on methimazole, but there were patients in our in our group who who took methimazole um, for the same the, the same thing. So so maybe in the pituitary world, maybe there are cases that are being you know you know misdiagnosed because maybe if you have I, I don't know you can imagine anything. Let's say you have somebody with uh, low testosterone. Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's say that uh, maybe I, I don't know like. Uh, you can imagine any case, for example, where you have one one hormone high, but then the pituitary is low, where in fact it is not low. I mean, you, you could imagine any 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 number of, of of pituitary cases where a misdiagnosis can occur, right? Yeah. Well, imagine a patient who has a low cortisol, and you work it up, and you can't figure out. You do a stimulation test; it's still low because the biotin's interfering, and you submit exactly. that patient to steroid therapy, and you know yeah. which. Yeah. And then they have to, they're going to suppress their pituitary adrenal function. Then you have to give them stress doses. It's just a train that you don't want to get on, right? So, yeah, that's an example. That's a great example. Thank you. And the Graves is an interesting one because your TSH will be low, but the T4, T3 might be high or high normal. Of course, if you do a thyroid scan, since the thyroid's really normal, it's going to uptake. So it's going to look just like Graves, you know? And, uh, and then you, yeah, that's amazing. And what is, um, uh, what is uh, what is so confusing on top of that, I'll give you an example about our local lab, is that uh, that's why I always say my logo or my slogan is know your lab because every lab is different and every assay is different. I myself went to my own lab. I, I went inside. I, I talked to the chemists and to the, to the lab technicians, and I asked them to show me every single uh, lab that they do 
to pull the pamphlet and read the ingredients and to show me what ingredients there is. So, uh, so that, 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 that that's how we came up with the list that I always show in my presentation for our local folks, uh, so that they know their own labs. Um, I would say, okay, in our lab, these are the labs that that are affected by biotin, but the others are not. For example, our TSH assay is not affected by biotin in our local lab. So imagine somebody, I, I struggled with a lot of these patients. Normal TSH, or even a little bit high if they are subclinical, high poor, and high T4 and T3. Go figure, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I mean, or, or is it like this? or pituitary tumor? Yeah, so that is the confusion. Uh, so it's not always a perfect case of a Graves, uh, like uh, your lab, it gets everything wrong, the T3 and the T4, the TSH, the TSI, and the, the thyrotropin receptor antibody. It's not always the case. It could be partial. <laughs> so uh, so that's even more confusing. And if, 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 if we use different, if our patients use different labs from this town, from that town, from this hospital, from that hospital, I mean, you could get a salad of, <laughs> you know. It, and you know it's a it's an extra layer of confusion. I mean, it's different from the person say who walks to the to their primary physician and gets thyroid functions on a screening process, but it's another layer of confusion in people who have a disease state where the assays yeah. are are critical to their management. Uh, so it's just a it, yeah. that extra layer is 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 potentially very dangerous. It is. It is. Yeah, no doubt. It is. I'm, so I'm, I'm I'm pleased we have not heard of any major, you know, catastrophes, unless we are missing. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, sure. So what what's the uh, recommendation for the amount of time a patient should be off of their supplements to enable these levels? To, I don't know anything about biotin clearance or anything. So how long does a patient have to be off supplements to allow their level to come back under 10 to where they won't have interference in a laboratory? Yeah, this has been studied, um, but not, not vigorously, you know. So, so the, again, the folks in laboratory medicine um, have studied that, and they've done uh, studies of clearing and what, what they call washout of, of biotin. So uh, we have to remember that it's not only biotin. Like anything else in medicine, there is the, 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 the substance, and then it's metabolized, right? So uh, to be more, to be more uh, like to be safer, to be more, more cautious, uh, one has to give more time than the recommended, uh, you know, re- uh, guideline. Um, earlier on in this uh, epidemic, if you wish, of, of biotin, uh, people were saying, okay, eight hours is enough. No, it's not enough. You know, it's not enough. Eight hours, I mean, you know, uh, the, the half-life, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I forgot what, I ha- what the half-life is. But the clearance, uh, you know, uh, kinetics, um, have, um, uh, for the most part, they, in two to three days, there will be a clearance of most of the biotin from the last dose. However, there will be metabolites or even biotin itself, if the dose is very high, that can linger still in the circulation or in, you know, the body for, uh, for, for a whole week, a total of a whole week. And therefore, my recommendation to my patients and what I, uh, you know, advise and what I recommend until a large definitive study, you know, like, you know, would tell us otherwise, is 
give one week. Number one, it's not an essential. It's not like aspirin or it's not like, you know, um, a medicine without which, you know, a major uh, catastrophe will occur. I mean, I mean, hopefully the hair will wait for a week, you know, uh, for its health. Um, so a week, I say, the, the reason I say a week is, is multiple reasons. Number one, to give more time for biotin and it's metabolized to be cleared completely. Uh, and number two, it's easy because it's difficult for the patient to count three days, right? <laughs> so I say, if I see a patient today, Thursday, I say, okay, uh, stop it and repeat the labs next Thursday. You see, it's easy. <laughs> Just, it will be easy to remember um, and it will be safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've been telling people at least 72 hours, but I prefer two weeks. So maybe that's too long. Maybe I'll follow your uh, lead and say a week yeah, is about I mean, right. I mean, so. two weeks would be, would be great. Uh, but I think the, for for most practical purposes, a week is okay. I mean, a week and then forget it a couple of days, you know, whatever. But a week, a minimum of a week. <laughs> yeah, so that's very interesting. Sort of, we're almost similar there in that regard that we feel like it takes longer than some of those published recommendations. Correct, 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 correct. So do you have any other thoughts or anything else you'd like to say about the biotin uh, story? Well, well, let me, I think let me ask you, go ahead and say, uh, then I have a question. So, uh. Yeah, the, the biotin story has not been told <laughs> yet, you know, because I mean, believe it, I, it's, 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 it's funny. Um, um, uh, Dr. It's, uh, I, when I was, when I was in the in the flight to San Diego last week to the meeting, and it was a pleasure meeting you there. Um, after we've been uh, we've been friends uh, on uh, on on the air um, and Facebook and whatnot. So when I was traveling, I you know my my fellow passenger uh, was sitting. Um, uh, she flew with me from Lansing to Detroit, and then I. Uh, then she went to London and I went to San Diego. And uh, she was a student at MSU. And um, uh, she asked me where I was going and so on, San Diego. And so what I, what you're doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm, there is a national meeting and I'm presenting research. So she said, what research are you doing? She, I said, well, I'm presenting research on biotin. Uh, she said, what about biotin? <laughs> I said, you know, and and then I understood that her study field was not science, but kind of like some uh, literal, literal uh, like communication and things like that. And so I I spoke in in a, a, a layman language. I said, you know, some people, especially women, they take uh, biotin for you know hair, skin, and nail uh, health, and it interferes with labs and it's causing confusion. And uh, some patients are get, uh, getting misdiagnosed. She said she looked at me. She said. Oh, I take biotin, and I didn't know that. <laughs> my, and she said, she said, that's why my doctor has been struggling to understand my thyroid labs. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, and this is just from last week. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to get the word out, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. The story has not been working. Yeah, I think so that's I a the good way to that, put it, you know. And I that's, that's. This opportunity to educate people. Yeah, and that's why I wanted you to be on this radio show with us, just to sort of help. We need to help get the word out, and this will be disseminated. Probably, we'll have five hundred to two thousand people listen to this show later after today. So I think we'll we're we're off to a good start. And one of the things that we've we've seen is that some things catch fire, 
And when we empower patients to sort of educate others, you know, they can talk to their doctors about it. They can teach their doctor yeah. and uh, they can teach other patients yeah. and things like that. So this is one way to have the, the, uh, the, uh, the word spread by wildfire, so to speak. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, those, those these educational programs that that go nation, nationwide are are, are are very important. And for example, I, as I said, I've been talking about this uh, even before I, I I got involved with with Abbott as 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 a consulting advisor. Uh, I I have a blog. You 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 may be aware of my blog, and I write I I've written so far about. Yeah, I writ- I've written three blogs uh, over like every year or so. I write a new blog with, and I use always you know catchy titles. And my blog, you know, um, it, it it's kind of like you know it's it's uh, it's to the public. I mean, so and I get some feedback. You know, I I, I every now and then I, uh, I I I get some feedback, and this is actually how Abbott uh, approached me because they read my blog. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Yeah, so the the medical publisher uh, is called Helio H E A L I O. So Helio.com. This is a, a national and international big uh, medical publisher. They have a magazine in every specialty, and we have our own, the Endocrinology News, um, and they have a print as well as an online magazine. They cover news of medicine from around the world. And so my blog is there, and uh, if 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 one the easiest way to look it up is to go to the main page of helio.com and to uh, to choose when they, there is the specialties to choose endocrinology. Uh, when you click endocrinology, it will open the endocrinology page, and you need to click those uh, three dots the, on on the on the right. Uh, top uh, corner uh, when you click it it will say uh, uh, the items one of the items is opinions so when you when you click opinions it will open the page of columns and blogs and and my blog is there it's called it's called the from the doctor's bag yes i have seen it it's wonderful and i do encourage people to read that we will um as we wrap this up in a moment, we'll, when it's done, we'll post it as a podcast. And with our article for the podcast, announcing the podcast, I think we'll put a blog, maybe a direct link to your blog. And also yeah, uh, yeah, also plan to put a direct link to the news article that was done on you in San Diego. And then I'll mm-hmm. also, I think I'll probably list those FDA uh, releases yeah, as well. Yeah, so people can yeah, read those absolutely. things. It's all about informing people and, and educating them as much as they can. My my sure, last sure. question to you is: What have you done in your practice or in your clinic to uh, inform people? Does everyone get a, a notice uh, when they come in? Yeah. Do they get a reminder? How how are you communicating to it a vast is, number it of is, people? It is by, by making our staff, residents, fellows, and nurses aware about biting to the extent that um i i think i sh- i shared on the facebook group of our group the endocrinologists like uh, for example from last week i i just showed a snapshot uh, like a screenshot or a snapshot of a medication list uh, so our nurses when they room in the patients they re- they know that they have to review not only the prescribed medications but also the supplements and and I showed a, a, a screenshot of a, a patient explaining that she takes, you know, vitamin D and uh, coenzyme, blah, blah, blah. And then 
one item was hair, nail, and skin. And and our our nurses they know that this is Biden, <laughs> you know. So it's kind of like uh, spreading awareness amongst both, both our patients and our our staff and and uh, providers. That's very good. We need to do the same at our institution. We were talking about that actually. I think it was just yesterday. Uh, how do we sort of program ourselves to get the word out to patients? Because what we've been doing is when we see funky lab tests that don't make sense, asking the patient if they're on biotin. But I think we need to do this in a more proactive manner. Yeah, yeah. And and I hope this podcast and this uh, activity will help uh, spread the word. And I will continue, you know, my efforts um, uh, to spread the word. And actually, uh, I, I did a webinar uh, 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 the in, uh, around the end of April was the so-called uh, uh, lab week, the national lab week. Uh, and it's kind of like a national, it's like the, the, lab, the nursing week and things like that. So it was uh, the last week of April was the national lab week. So I was asked by uh, by uh, Abbott to, um, uh, to, uh, to present a webinar, which was, you know, uh, posted online, and I got a I got a feedback from a colleague from the NIH in the laboratory section of the NIH, who said, "Oh, uh, Doctor Atsuki, I I I heard your webinar. That's a very good, uh, you know, public education." So I mean, you know, the the word is is being spread, but it has to go out bigger, you know. Well, if you wouldn't mind, send me the webinar address, and we can post that as well when we announce this uh, this sure, radio show sure. podcast. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and just one, one, one last uh, thing, Dr. Bevins, uh, just to correct, I forgot that you initially, just to be uh, exact, uh, so the study uh, that uh, we presented uh, at is it was not published. Uh, it was it was just uh, presented as an abstract. So just just to make it clear. Uh, for the transparency. So, you know, the next step will be publishing the manuscript. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that and good luck with that. So I have to say, uh, Shukran Katir, uh, thank you very much. We appreciate your participation uh, uh, in this uh, program with Pituitary World News. And with that, uh, I'm going to uh, sign off and uh, invite people to uh, listen weekly, uh, same time, same place. Uh, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.